and we are just gonna start the show right now. What's up, everyone? Welcome into the Hangout in the Holy Land, the official podcast of LandGrantHolyLand.com. I'm Colton Denning. I'm joined, as always, by my buddy, Patrick Mayhorn. Patrick, we have a very special episode, show, and series right now that we are we are diving headfirst into. Yeah, we do. This is kind of, um, I, I don't know if I can say this is our first kind of collaborative podcast project, but I, I don't know when the last time we did something like this was, and I'm, I'm excited for it. We've got kind of a, I, I think, a really good way to pass the time this off season because there is just not a whole lot going on, and um, you came to me with this idea, so I'll, I'll let you intro it, but uh, I, I think it should be kind of a uh, fun way to to pass the time during the offseason. Well, we stole this idea directly from the shutdown full cast, who, yeah. all credit to them, <laughs> did an episode of like the most rewatchable college football games of all time. And Patrick had the idea of what if we put that towards Ohio state and we solicited your guys's questions on Twitter and we got a really good response. And a lot of us are kind of on the same wavelength of games that we're interested in. And to really stretch this thing out over the off season, we thought, why not just make a top 20 list? And for selfish reasons, Patrick and I can just talk about the games we want and we can kind of break down some of the more fun games in Ohio State history. And first of all, as a disclaimer, this is just our opinion. All of these games, I think, are objectively good. Like, there isn't a game on this list where I think anybody could be like, no, actually, that game sucked. Like, all of these are good, even if you disagree with the order. It's our list. And secondly, I think that this is just a fun way to go back and rewatch Ohio State games that have significance for different reasons. Not all of these are just like the best game, came down to the wire, went to overtime, whatever. It could be on this list because of their historical significance, because there was a beatdown, which there are a couple of on this list there are national championships so there's a there's a whole different bunch of games on this list but I I think every one of them has their place and I am very interested to receive our listener feedback when it comes to these games but uh, you think it's time to to dive right into this yeah let's jump right in okay let's do this I, I brought up overtime and we might as well start with the first overtime game in Ohio Stadium history. And this is one that I don't think people talk enough about in the pantheon of like weird Ohio State games. And that is Ohio State's 44-38 to three overtime win over NC State in 2003. I, I don't know how familiar, were, familiar you were with this game before we put together this list and made this one number 20 but this was a very crazy game that embodied a lot of the Jim Trestle era and embodied a lot of the 2003 Ohio State team yeah the the 2003 Ohio State team is I I think one of Trestle's most unique because and that's not necessarily a compliment the the 2003 team was really it, it was it was essentially an experiment. It was what does a Jim Trestle team look like if they still have an awesome defense, if they still have a a game manager at quarterback, some good skill position players, but also absolutely no running game. Um, <laughs> the the 2003 team, and it wasn't you know it was not 
any of the the coaches' faults. It was that Maurice Claret was no longer there, and they thought he would be. And so it, it was kind of a a way to to put the the theory of trestle ball to the test to see if if it could still work and you could still run a a, um, a fairly naturally conservative offense and conservative approach without actually really being able to run the football. And I mean, they still won 11 games that season. They still went to and won the Fiesta Bowl. We're still very good, mostly because of how awesome the defense was. Um, but this this game specifically and you know the the way that it unfolded i think really kind of encapsulated the whole season because the the thing i kept going back to in watching this game and um i i don't know if you noticed this as well but there was a really stark contrast between craig krenzel and philip rivers who was nc state's quarterback at the time where um philip rivers looked like competent and good and Craig Krenzel didn't look like he belonged on a football field. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of times during this game. I think Krenzel had four touchdown passes, three interceptions, two of which were absolutely just back-breaking, horrible throws. They're just like the worst imaginable <laughs> time for an interception. You can tell, like you said, this is a team that was trying to figure out how to play without Maurice Claret because at this point, they were 2-0, and NC State was 1-1. One one. I don't remember if by that point we all knew that Maurice Claret wasn't coming back, but you could just tell that the offense was really figuring out what they wanted to do because with Maurice Hall and Lydell Ross, those guys were, I think, very good change of pace backs. But when you put them into those starting roles, they just the offense was not as dynamic on the ground. And without... You know, for all of his leadership slash grit abilities, they're just uh, Craig Krenzel couldn't put the ball on the money a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> to he, be quite honest, he very much he was a quarterback that needed an elite running back, and I, I think he was helped quite a bit this season and in general at Ohio State by the fact that he had you know Michael Jenkins and Ben Hartsock and Santonio Holmes to kind of keep him afloat and to to help him out but it really stood out in this game even though Ohio State was able to score points you know the I think the 44 is certainly inflated by the the fact that they went to several overtimes but Ohio State was able to score points in this game it was just they pretty frequently did it in spite of themselves they did it because they were able to generate good field position off of their defense and it was a whole lot of punting it was a whole lot of playing for for field position and it i mean it worked well enough that they could win 11 games but it was really really obvious from the start that ohio state in the early trestle years without an elite running game just was not there yet offensively i just want to point out how great nc state's all white uniforms looked yeah on the Ohio Stadium field and how much I miss the natural grass. The artific- I've never gotten used to the artificial yeah. turf. It's trash. I hate it. I wish Ohio Stadium would go back to the all grass. I also noticed uh, NC State head coach Chuck Amato's all white sunglass look. That was <laughs> very, very impressive. But there, there's a couple things I really like about this game and why I think that that 20 was a good spot for it. One, which I already mentioned, this was the first overtime game in Ohio Stadium history. Ohio State was on the 16-game winning streak, of course, being defending national champions. 
and this these are the non-conference matchups that I really miss where not only was it a home and home Ohio State played in Raleigh the next year and won 22 to 14 but this was a matchup that wasn't two powers you know we know what Ohio State is but NC State isn't historically one of the upper echelon teams in the ACC and I, I feel like these are the type of games that we don't see anymore where teams will play a home and home if they're not powerhouses of course we always see the neutral site games to start the season every year now but I, I really miss these type of games between power conferences yeah I um not not to to shift too much into to current day stuff I did see that um I can't remember who it was that they scheduled against, but I know that Alabama recently scheduled a home and home, and it'll be the first time since like 2011 that they're playing a um, a road non-conference game, which is just wild to me. Um, I, I wish I could remember who it was that they're playing against, but I, I would like to see more of that. I would like to see more of these these kind of games where top teams are playing not necessarily other top teams, but are playing good Power 5 teams and they're doing it at the home stadiums. They're not doing it in NFL fields. They're not doing it in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. They're not doing it in these these massive, you know, kind of very corporate stadiums. I, I really like this environment of this specific game. I really like it when, like, even like, and we're going to talk about this later on in the series, like Ohio State and Texas, they're home and home, or yeah. Ohio State, USC later on in the 2000s. I, I think that those kind of series are really fun. They're really special. Um, I wish that Ohio State would have kept that home and home that they were planning on doing with TCU um, instead of turning it into this this kind of very soulless very like big business feeling one game in Jerry world. I, I think that college football is made better by home and home series like, uh, like this one. And the, the environment really stood out to me because the, it's a little bit hard to, to gauge because the broadcast is fairly old. Now the crowd sounded really good at Ohio stadium in this game. I, I thought that they were, like pretty significantly loud for a, a large portion of the game and you just don't see that at those neutral site games do you remember now that you brought up alabama do you remember when alabama played on the road at duke in like 2010 <laughs> or 2011 i think that no. was when mark mark ingram won the heisman yeah 2010 alabama first ever trip to duke and i, I saw that florida and colorado scheduled a home and home for 2000. 2029 yeah, and <laughs> that's a long way away but that is stuff that's really good for college football i know that ohio state is on the road at oregon next year so that's stuff we love to see and that's that's what was fun about this matchup and to low-key we're gonna talk later on in the list you talked about the texas game of course we're gonna have stuff like the miami national championship the playoff game against alabama out of all of those games, those are the obvious ones where you would say, wow, there's a lot of high-level talent. A lot of guys in, in that game are going to the NFL and are going to be really good. There was a lot of talent yeah. in this game that was under the radar. Just among the lines, you had Nick Mangold, uh, true freshman Mario Williams for uh, NC Yeah, State. I have some things to say about <laughs> yeah. Mario Williams. He, as a true freshman in his third game, he was making some plays against a very good offensive line. There was... 
You had Jenkins out wide, Chris Gamble, AJ Hawk, who had an interception, Philip Rivers, who you mentioned, Jericho uh, Cotri. Je- yeah, Jericho Cotri, Santo- a young Santonio Holmes, Will Smith, and then there was T.A. McClendon, who was a running back for NC State. And some older fans will probably remember he ran for 1,100 yards as a true freshman at NC State, and he injured his knee, I think, late in that season, and he never was the same running back. He flashed a couple times in this game. He was a dude as a freshman and looked like he was going to be one of the ACC's best backs and one of the best running backs in NC State history. So he's like eighth on this list, but in terms of just straight-up talent, this game is up there because there was a lot of really good guys. Yeah, it's um, it's something that's commonly talked about. I, I've heard uh, a couple different podcasts, a couple different websites talk about how it's strange that NC State produces so much NFL talent and never wins 10 games, is never really that great on the actual field. And that was, you know, that was true even back then. And the the one that that you mentioned that really really stood out to me was Mario Williams. Um, even as a freshman, he was enormous. Yeah. I, <laughs> like yeah, I I don't know if it stood out to you as much as it did to me when I was watching it. He he looked like an entirely different like everyone else on the line looked like they were playing a different sport than him <laughs> because he was just like he was so much larger than every other NC State defensive lineman. It was like immediately when when both teams lined up, you could pick him out regardless of where he was lining up on the line. He was just already outstanding. And I like I spent a, a good chunk rewatching this game just watching Mario Williams. And I, I think that is, like you said, kind of a testament to the amount of talent that was in this game where You've got guys like a freshman Mario Williams. You've got Jericho Cotri, who I thought was really, really good in this game. Michael, yeah, Michael Jenkins, who, I mean, one of probably the most underrated receivers in Ohio State history. He was pretty consistently awesome without a really very good quarterback. Just a a really fun game to watch. A really fun game to go back and you know you've got scoring, you've got really good defense, you've got really elite pass rushers really elite defensive players chris gamble is another one who i mean as locked down as they get for for college cornerbacks just just a ton of talent on the field you know even against a team like nc state that i don't think was awesome that year i i don't remember a ton about nc state in 2003 if i was to guess i i can't imagine that they were yeah eight and five you know, and they still just they just had a ton of talent. Philip Rivers was very obviously good, even this early on in his career. Mario Williams was very obviously good this early on in his career. And it's it's fun to go back and watch those guys playing as, you know, really young players. The funniest thing about this game to me is that if you watch Philip Rivers and the Chargers play, they're running the exact same offense that <laughs> he State is running sixteen years later, and he looks like the same quarterback, they only took His a couple. His throwing motion is f-ing weird. That's it's crazy, <laughs> and and he he hasn't changed at all. He's the same dude. He plays the same way. They ran like speed option a couple times and a couple quarterback sneaks, including a very interesting call in the third overtime. 
but he looks like the exact same dude. Like at one point in the second quarter, he's seven of twelve for thirty-six yards, and I felt like that is very of uh, a very Philip Rivers way to start the game. But he finishes thirty-six of fifty-two, three hundred fifteen yards, four touchdowns, two interceptions, and like like you said, he was very good even back then. But I don't think people remember like that season. He had over 4,500 yards passing, came out to over 10.1 adjusted yards per attempt, 34 touchdowns, seven interceptions. He was both the ACC Offensive Player of the Year and Offensive or just Player of the Year in general. So, like, he was a dude. And you add Jericho Cotri, who had a really successful NFL career and had over 1,300 yards receiving that year. This was a super potent offense. Yeah, it was, and it was it was strange to watch. Um, it it kind of squandered a little bit. You you mentioned the way that they they run offense and the way that the Chargers kind of still do the same thing. That I I couldn't really help but but thinking in watching this game. Man, imagine how good this offense would be if it had like plays that were good. <laughs> it wasn't doing like a speed option on uh, on third and four with Philip Rivers and trying to use him that way and let him throw down the field a little bit more. And he he certainly is still a, a very strange passer. He was at the time as well. I mean, kind of kind of sidearmed, um, which is it's a little bit jarring to watch. But then you go and you look at Craig Krenzel, and he's he's throwing the ball like a shot put. It was like he couldn't fully hold the ball. So he had to, he had to kind of launch it by keeping his hand under it at all times. And just, just a really unique um, matchup of quarterbacks, guys who do things in a strange way, either by choice or by necessity in, in Krenzel's case. And two offenses that I, I certainly – wouldn't consider to be good but have so much talent that it, it creates a a really interesting situation where you've got all this talent on the field and it, it's it's almost like watching an NFL game where you know that all these guys are good but they're being held by, back by the fact that they have to run everything out of the I formation <laughs> but when you look back at NC State's offense it was 2003 and they were in five wide a lot of the game yeah, they were yeah, single much back. more so than Ohio State was. Yeah, yeah, they were single back a lot, and now that's just kind of the norm. But for then, that that really seemed like it was kind of progressive. Just just watching, they did that four receiver to the left diamond set a couple of times, which was super weird. And there couldn't have been many teams that were doing that. But this game overall was just odd, and it was a very Jim Trestle game because Ohio State gets up. 14 nothing thanks to a face mask fumble on a kickoff and they're up 14 7 at half and they're kind of just putting along but then they get up 24 to 7 and there's 11 minutes left and re-watching this you're like how in the world does nc state come back because their offense really didn't do much ohio state's offense kind of just does enough but San Antonio Holmes fumbles a punt with nine minutes left, and then it just all all hell breaks loose, and NC State ties the game up with 21 seconds. It's 24 to 24 going into overtime, and there was like a real sense that Ohio State could lose this game. I remember I was at a laser tag birthday party when this game was happening, and I was watching <laughs> overtime in the front while we were eating pizza, and I was like, man, these, these guys are going to lose to NC State. Like This this very well could have ending, ended the losing streak. I know we all remember the Wisconsin game, 
but it was it could have been over right here. Yeah, it was especially in overtime. And you mentioned kind of a strange play call in overtime. It really did feel like at the end of that game that NC State kind of blew it and that it wasn't really Ohio State winning that game as much as it was NC State losing it because they're, you know, they in the third overtime they get all the way down to the goal line. They're I think they were inside the 5 and they um the the game saving play for Ohio State was on a I think it was an NC State toss play, and it was just a bizarre fourth down call, just just a very strange, um, a very strange idea of what would work in that specific situation. And Ohio State obviously had the answer, and the the announcers, um, I, I think specifically mentioned how. Like this was a very Ohio State way to end a game where it was like that Miami championship game where at the very end the other team is right on the goal line. They just need a touchdown to to tie it up, to send it to another overtime. And they make kind of a strange decision and then Ohio State is able to take advantage and escape with the win. And I, I think it really was, you know, both of the games that we're gonna talk about today really were um like as trestle ball as it gets where you have this lead you kind of sit on it and then sometimes you know you you fumble a punt return you fumble a kickoff return you throw um possibly the worst interception i've ever seen that that krenzel interception in the fourth quarter on like third and long inside of his own 10 was just dreadful um and when you when you do that when you sit back on a lead like that Things like that can happen occasionally, and it certainly did here. And I, I think that you know Ohio State benefited from the fact that they had played in so many close games. They had played in you know not any overtime games to to this point at home, but they they had played in these close games. They had been in these situations, and they were I think a little bit more prepared than NC State. And that's that's kind of what ended up winning them the game at the end. I'd say that was the worst interception at Ohio Stadium, but thankfully for Craig Krenzel, Jim Harbaugh called play action <laughs> inside his own two-yard line, and Wilton Spate obliged him, and we'll, we'll talk about that later on oh, as man. we as we go through uh, this list. You, you brought up the announcers. For some of our older listeners, you might remember Ed Cunningham, the uh, the color analyst. He was absolutely one of the worst analysts. Every time I listen or I watch an Ed Cunningham game, I am so glad that he is no longer an announcer because he he comes from the Dave Pash school of just like I'm going to be appalled at everything. Like they're gonna run the ball on third and two. What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, even in the second overtime, because NC State gets up and Ohio State has to score. And Ryan Hamby ends up catching the tying touchdown, which earmarked that one for uh, for later. But it, it's just they could have lost, and then they get to the third overtime. Michael Jenkins scores the winning touchdown because, of course, whenever any of those teams needed somebody to make a play, Jenkins did it. He gets absolutely annihilated over the middle when he catches it, and he finishes with seven catches, 124 yards, and two touchdowns. Earlier on, you said he might be the most overlooked Ohio State receiver ever. I will stand on the table that he's the best receiver in Ohio State history, given his numbers and the significance of what he did. And I'll do a little self-plug here. I've cut up a, a career highlight video for him, youtube.com slash Colton Denning. Michael Jenkins, it's like 16 minutes. I showed this video to my best friend who's a Florida fan last summer, and he he knew Michael Jenkins, 
but he didn't know the extent. So like we get six, seven minutes in and he says, well, this guy's pretty good. And then the Purdue game happens. And then, <laughs> and then the national championship game happens where he catches the fourth and 14 and the Illinois game where he catches a couple long passes from Krenzel. And he looks at me, he's like, holy shit, like this dude did everything for this team. And when you think about it, all of those big moments, he was the guy who stepped up and we love to talk about Krenzel and Maurice Claret and the defense, but Michael Jenkins was the heart and soul of that team. And whenever they needed a big play, it was usually him who who came up with it. Yeah, Michael Jenkins was, I, I think, uh, a certified dude. <laughs> the, the best way to describe him, just really great route runner, really, I think, as consistent hands and sideline awareness and just just a really really good receiver i think that you know he's one of the receivers that will certainly stand on the table for um terry glenn is another one who i think would have to be up there even though he only really played one season at ohio state just there there have been a ton of really awesome receivers at ohio state that haven't always been used in the best way and i think that michael jenkins like you said is certainly right up near the top of that list of guys who were just just phenomenal even if the offense really didn't showcase them maybe as much as it would have you know who wasn't phenomenal in this game dustin fox because he held all game he had like four passes. there were so many penalties at the end of this game some bad (laughs) bad bad defensive plays in this game but it, it gets down to the end and you talked about the pitch that nc state ran on fourth down i thought the worst call was the quarterback sneak on third down where they like tried to quick count him and it was so obvious that they were running a quarterback sneak and Rivers gets stuffed at the two and it leads to that fourth down which is a great play by AJ Hawk who initially makes the hit and then Will Allen just comes up he and rocks <laughs> TA McClendon and my favorite thing is uh Rivers just absolutely loses his shit thinking <laughs> thinking that he got into the end zone and it wasn't even close like he was down at maybe the one and a half and I think he throws his helmet like there's just a great reaction and a weird call by NC State but a great play by AJ Hawk and Will Allen and like you said that team just came to live by those sort of moments and for about a year and a half they did nothing but come out as the victors when it came down to it. Yeah, those those early trestle teams, I, I don't know there there's not a ton of them on the rest of our list. Um and I, I think that that's kind of Thank by God. design. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, those those teams really did make a living in close games. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the list. I think that there's one other I, I won't spoil. It's also not super high up on the list um, because it was like this was before Jim Trestle really got into the idea that you could score points consistently and you didn't have to just play defense. And um, I, I have kind of a, a working theory that Jim Trestle's teams, when he had a really good quarterback or at least a, a capable quarterback, the, the highs of those teams were just about as good as the highs of Urban Meyer's best teams. I, I think that when Trestle had Troy Smith, when Trestle had Terrell Pryor, those offenses were great. Those teams in general were great. And they would they would still lean on the, you know, you, you get a big lead early and then you just kind of sit on it. And it would come back to bite them occasionally, like in the game we're going to talk about next. But when he did have an offense later on, they were just spectacular to watch, and we we have quite a few of those 
um, those later trestle team games in our in our list much more so than the early trestle teams. But those first few years of trestle, they were they were kind of a struggle because the offense just did not quite have its footing. Even you know even 2002 when you have a guy like Maurice Claret, they just they could not really put games away. They couldn't really get super far over like 20 points and it, it obviously didn't hurt them but man those games like very stressful to watch early trestle teams because they just every game had to be close every single one had to be close you said earlier that this was one of his more unique teams i also think it's one of the most overlooked because it was a, a group that wasn't as good as the year before without Claret, it was clear that they were just a notch below. But with all those guys we listed earlier, you could tell they were super talented. And a lot of them were young. There was freshman Santonio Holmes. You had some guys on defense who were still pretty young in, in A.J. Hawk, who had a, the slowest 55-yard interception return in uh, <laughs> talk football, about slow middle football history. <laughs> that that was a slower interception return than, than like 80-yard Cam Hayward return against Miami in 2010. I, I wonder if you timed those out, what it would look like. But <laughs> I, I think this team is a, a little bit overlooked because – they lost. They were one of the last teams to lose to Michigan, which is crazy because this was 16 years ago, and they weren't as good as 2002. But they were still really good. They finished 11 and two. They absolutely destroyed K State in the Fiesta Bowl, which was another very trestle game. They won by, they won by seven. They won by seven. But when yeah. you go back and watch that game, which spoiler that this that game does not make the list. But when oh. you go back and watch it, they killed them. Yeah, it was 35-14 at the end of the third quarter. Yeah, that game wasn't even close. But I, I think that they get a little bit overlooked because the Wisconsin game happened the way it did. Uh, shout out to Jim Sorge. Um, Apologies for everything that happened in that one. We're still sorry. <laughs> still sorry about that one. But I, this was a really good team that just didn't have the same gear as the 2002 team. But I, I think kind of continue to establish what the Jim Trestle era would become. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that, you know, as we go further into this list, um, like I said, we've got a lot of Trestle stuff. I think that, that Jim Trestle is kind of, I don't want to say overlooked because I think he is appropriately recognized by Ohio State fans. But I, I think that there are times where we, we get into these, you know, this – uh, kind of a um, kind of a path where we, we think that Jim Trestle didn't coach offense at all and those teams just didn't score and um, you know a game like kind of shows that that wasn't necessarily the case you know I I, uh, I was tweeting about it late last night for a project I'm working on um, there was a, a really interesting counter toss play that Ohio State kind of kind of led the way on I, I think that that was Jim Trestle's you know, he he kind of invented that play. He kind of revolutionized the way that they were doing tosses, and it was it was little little things like that. He certainly wasn't a spread coach. He certainly wasn't a brilliant offensive mind by any by any means. But I do think he he gets overlooked a little bit. He gets considered more conservative than maybe he was. And this game, not the best example <laughs> of that. But I do think there are games on this list where 
you know, Ohio State under Trestle was still really, really good. I think that their highs were as high as any other in Ohio State history. And I think that there were some teams under Trestle that could score with just about anybody. Um, you know, we'll talk about the 2006 team a couple times on this list, I think. We'll talk about 2005. We'll talk about some of the Terrell prior years. And I'm excited to get to those games, too. But I, I do think it's important to remember you know what Ohio State was building from back in 2003 where you look at this roster and, and like you said there are a ton of young guys on it there are a ton of you know you got freshman Antonio Holmes you've got a bunch of talent on offense that really wasn't there when Trestle showed up and he had to build it up and he was doing this with a quarterback that just wasn't very good and I think that explains a lot of those very stressful early years. Uh, Jim Bowman offensive guru um, <laughs> that's right we love him folks we do to, to put a to put a bow on number 20 i feel like this is what and why people should go back and watch this game because that's really the the point of this whole exercise is that this is a, a very slept on game it's the first overtime game at ohio stadium there's a ton of not only college talent but future high level nfl talent in this game it's one of those rare non-conference games this game and the game next year were the only two times that Ohio State has played NC State in history, and it's a three-overtime game that gets pretty wild at the end, so I, I think this is a good start at 20 because this game is very enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, if you're looking for a way, if, if I remember right, there's a no-huddle version on YouTube, which is... Yeah, 47 really, minutes. Yeah, it's a really wonderful resource. Shout out to the guy that, that does that. I've been... Uh, burning through a ton of those for the 2006 season. It's very, very helpful. Um, you know, if you've got an hour, it's, I think, worth watching for Mario Williams alone. But, you know, like like Colton said, there's a lot of talent in this game, a lot of, I think, stuff worth watching to kind of remember. Uh, not that long ago, football didn't really, you know, it didn't have a ton of offense. It didn't have a ton of downfield passing. It was a very different sport, and I, I think that, even without the the super high-flying air raid offense that we see at Ohio State now, this game was really fun to watch. There was there was a ton of talent, and I think that you know even though it's pretty low on on our list in terms of rewatchability, it's 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 high. All right, so moving from one team that I think is is very overlooked in Ohio State history to another one, which I don't know if we need to jump into this right now. I think is the most overlooked team in Ohio State history, and another Jim Trestle team, and that is 2010, and this is Ohio State's 31-26 to win over Arkansas in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, officially, this game is vacated. It never happened. Ohio State uh, still has not played Arkansas in school history based off of what the NCAA says, but we saw it with our own eyes. This happened. Uh, Jim Trestle versus Bobby Petrino. What a matchup here, Patrick. Two titans of industry. <laughs> Two yeah. titans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, I, I will say that I agree on the, the 2010 team being overlooked pretty significantly. I, I think that this is one of my stronger Ohio State takes is that the 2010 team was as good as any team in, in school history. I mean, I'm in, fine in with terms that. of. In terms of pure talent, the guys that were on this roster, they were outstanding. I mean, this was really later on in his in his time at Ohio State, Jim Trestle was much more willing to have an open offense, and it, it was not it, it still wasn't anywhere near a, a full spread, but you do see it in, you see it in this game. You saw it 
a ton with Terrell Pryor just in general. And I mean, <clears throat> this this team was just just awesome. Their their defense was fantastic. Um, you know, you've got guys like Cam Hayward. You've got guys like uh, Brian Roll, who I think really gets gets kind of forgotten in um, in the Ohio State history books. Who was just a tackle machine. Um, those backers were really secretly good. Um, you know, a guy like Nathan Williams, who was really good pass rusher. A lot of really underrated defensive players that kind of got lost to time a little bit in Ohio State history. Um, but this defense was awesome. This offense was probably, I, I don't know if I'll go as far to say as it was Trestle's best. I think that 2006 probably takes that. But, you know, you've got Terrell Pryor, who was really, really good at this time. He he had become a very capable passer and an outstanding runner. You've got Boom Heron, who another one of those Ohio State running backs who kind of, you know, was sandwiched between Beanie Wells and Ezekiel Elliott a little bit and, you know, I, I think goes underlooked a little bit. Brandon Sane, who was very good, um, even though he didn't touch the ball a ton. And then Dane Sandsenbacher, Devere Posey, Jake Stoneburner. I mean, this offense had a ton of talent. The offensive line gets, I, I think, an unnecessary amount of disdain when when folks look back on it. You know, that was the, the group that had like four or five five stars in it and never quite lived up to expectations. I, I think that uh, J.B. Shugarch mm. played a, a large role in the disdain for this offensive line. But a a good chunk of that group, I think that they said on the broadcast that the entire left side of that line was first team all americans if i if i'm remembering the broadcast correctly um it you know this team had some some serious get up and go on offense the defense was really good and this game probably not the best example of it but um you know if it, if it wasn't for that loss to wisconsin i think this team probably wins the national championship i, I think that they they certainly had the talent to do so they showed it pretty much every week there were only a couple close games the entire season um the miami game pretty early on was a little bit tight not as much even as the final score indicated the you know the iowa game when Iowa was pretty consistently a top 25 team and then obviously the wisconsin loss but outside of that they really just steamrolled everybody they played and I think one of the most enjoyable Trestle teams to watch and maybe one of the most enjoyable Ohio State teams to watch. I don't disagree with any of that. I think that they would have stomped Oregon and they would have beat Auburn in, in that national championship. Man, game. Terrell Pryor against Newton is a f- fantastic match. That's a matchup I feel <laughs> that we got cheated out of not seeing it. We were yeah, and this, this team was 11 and one coming into this game. They, like you said, they only lost that game to Wisconsin, which there was the opening kickoff that went to the touchdown. That game was from the start, and they finished second in S and P plus behind Alabama. They finished with the number two defense in S and P plus, number ten offense. So they were super balanced, and this was like a, a super trestle team. The defense was what he wanted it to be and the offense had progressed to the point where they opened it up a little bit more he trusted prior they had some playmakers out wide they had heron like you mentioned everything that he wanted to do traditionally running the ball they could do but terrell prior really opened up the next level of his game and by this point was a much better passer than what we saw in 2008 in the early stages of 2009 he had really matured in this game, too, outside of 
just that outside of the way it finished and how crazy of a game it was. This was this game had a lot of storylines, not only leading up to it, but really when you look back on it. And that's one of the reasons I, I think that it needed to be on the list because it's the last game of the Jim Trestle era. And that's obviously a huge deal because then we moved into this whole other era of Ohio State football. But coming into it, Ohio State, you know, the big storyline was they were 0-9 versus the SEC in bowl games. They were facing an Arkansas team that has kind of gotten lost in the cracks of history talking about. They were pretty awesome that year. They finished fifth in S&P Plus, second in offense. Buddy, when Bobby Petrino doesn't have to cycle through a recruiting class, he's elite. Like, he is very good when he doesn't have to play with his guys for more than four years. Ryan Mallett was the quarterback in this game for Arkansas. Niall Davis had almost 1,400 yards rushing. And then Arkansas had five dudes over 600 yards receiving that year, one of which tight end DJ Williams was a guy who I think flamed out in the NFL, but what... I think he led he the won, country for tight ends He won the Mackey Award. He was really, yeah. really, really talented. And they had only lost to Bama by four that season, and they lost 65-43 to 43 to Auburn. So this was an Arkansas team that like was not a pushover. And just from the standpoint of Ohio State needing to get over that hump and how big of a talking point... It was that they couldn't beat a team in the SEC. This was a really huge game for them. I think it is important that we talk about Ryan Mallett. <laughs> I, I am all for it. I think it is paramount that we talk about Ryan Mallett. So one of the first plays of this game, I think it might be the first play for the scrimmage. Yeah. Um, Ryan Mallett, I, I think, like, objectively a bad person, did not work in the NFL because he was a bad person. Um just very strange dude um didn't seem to really care all that much about football didn't <laughs> didn't seem to really really want to play football all that much um but that that first throw and really the game that that followed um man Ryan Mallett could throw a football in in terms of you know we're we're talking in terms of rewatchability, if you want to to go down a rabbit hole, I, I think uh, I think Ryan Mallett highlights on YouTube are right up there with some of the best rabbit holes to fall down because he he started off this game and like you know watching him throw is is something where you can kind of get the allure of why NFL teams love to draft tall guys that aren't actually all that good uh, to play quarterback because like. His accuracy wasn't great. You know, he was he was right around sixty five percent. That's I mean, that's pretty good for what he was doing. But you see him on that first play, and he throws the ball like eighty miles per hour. And <laughs> the announcers were were talking about how it probably should have been caught. You know, I think it was Joe Adams who was on the other end of that that pass and couldn't hang on to it. And like. I don't know how that pass could have possibly been caught because he threw it as hard as I've ever seen a human being. Throw I don't know. That thing was beautiful because it was like forty yards downfield. It was a beautiful pass. It was pass. just an yeah. unbelievable throw. And this is that's something I had written down that this was when we all thought like Ryan Mallett is going to be a top ten pick. And of course, knowing what we know now, is like whoa. And of course, like he slid to what the fifth round or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Just in terms of the way he was able to throw the ball, it's just funny that 
you know, in the end, he really was a true Michigan man because he ended his career with a loss to Ohio State. So it all it all <laughs> tied perfectly. The circle of college football life tied perfectly for Ryan Mallett, but Arkansas was good. That offense was really Kobe fun. Hamilton was super good, and, and Niall Davis was one of my favorite players in college football while he was at Arkansas. He reminded me so much of DeMarco Murray in the way that Oklahoma used him and just kind of the way he was able to knife through defenses. And he had a pretty big day in this game, but this is another one. We talked about the NC State game where it was just talent on talent. The NC State game probably had more dudes that ended up being really good in the NFL, but just college football-wise, this was for a, a... a non-national championship bowl game. This was up there. This was really good. Yeah, and you you mentioned earlier. Um, I I will go back to this because I uh, I just fact checked it to make sure. So this happened like a week and a half after the tattoo stuff came. Yeah, out. we we should have mentioned it, and I have it written down on the side. I've I totally forgot about that until I rewatched this last night and they talked about it on the broadcast. There were like signs about it. Like Arkansas fans had signs about it and that reminded me. I was like, holy shit, that's right. This happened after the tattoo gate stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so this, the tattoo stuff was on December 23rd and this was either what, like New Year's Eve or... This was the... Somewhere around This was January 4th. Okay, so this was like two weeks later. um, Prior... Posey, Devere Posey, Boom Heron, Mike Adams, and Solomon Thomas had gotten suspended for this game, and Ohio State had like got together and elected to let them play, and it was the five-game suspension for the 2011 season for selling awards. Terrell Pryor sold his Fiesta Bowl Sportsmanship Award, which, wow, what a different time we are in that that was like an outrage. Ten, that got ten, a coach fired. Ten years ago. That got a program basically, they, they couldn't go to a bowl game in 2000. They couldn't go to the national championship because of this. <laughs> because they got tattoos and they sold things that belonged to them. When you think about it in the macro scheme of things, it doesn't feel like things change within 10 years. But when you look at it like this, based off of what we're seeing with college basketball right now, this would be a total non-story. They got the cover yeah, of Sports I mean, Illustrated, and they wrote about Jim Tressel like he was like a mass murderer. And they were like, how deep did the <laughs> rabbit hole go at Ohio State? It, it really is. like It's it's super bizarre to look back on. Um, and I, I think that uh, I, I will stake the claim that it was pretty ridiculous that Jim, Tra- that Jim Tressel got fired for this or that anyone got in trouble for it at all. I mean <laughs> – if it happens in 2019, what is the what is the punishment here? Like one game, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I, I don't like maybe one game. I don't even know if it gets reported because who cares? It, it doesn't <laughs> like it, like I, I remember a couple of years ago something like this happened with Todd Gurley, and there was an immediate reaction of like, oh, this is this is big news, and then everyone thought about it for like more than a second. And realize, like, who cares? It, it doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't matter at all. Um, and it's just, it's really bizarre that this cost Jim Tressel his coaching career. I mean, I don't know if he would if have wanted to get back into coaching, but um, it, it cost him his coaching career because of how long the show cause was because he got fired from Ohio State. 
Um, it, you know, dropped Terrell Pryor entirely out of the draft, probably changed his career forever because he became a supplemental pick instead, was never really viewed as a true quarterback at that point. Um, Devere Posey didn't end up, you know, being anything in the NFL. I think he was a third round pick. So it, I don't, I don't think it impacted him as much, but like that 2011 Ohio state team probably wins a national championship if they have all these guys and they still have Jim Trestle because just about everybody was set to come back. Um, this was Terrell Pryor's junior year, right? Yeah. So you would have had, presumably you would have had Pryor back. I, I think that they were expecting to get all these guys back after the 2010 season. They really weren't losing a ton. And then you've got Braxton Miller, learning for a year behind Terrell Pryor instead of starting as a freshman, the butterfly effect of this extremely small, insignificant thing where players are giving away the stuff in exchange, the stuff that they were you know, given for, for bowl games and for accomplishments in exchange for, in some cases, very small amounts of cash, in other cases, tattoos. And it changes the entire trajectory of the program <laughs> because of it. And it was like... This game is a very, it's it's like it's an extremely surreal thing to watch because all these guys were still playing. You know, Terrell Pryor still played in this game. Devere Posey, Solomon Thomas, uh, Mike Adams, all of them played in this game, and the announcers really didn't talk about it a ton. It was like you know, Jim Trestle was this dead man walking, still coaching the team. <laughs> just it was bizarre and then this off season was the one when Bobby Petrino was was fired after the motorcycle crash so you've got you know it, it's like two teams that you know Arkansas less so because they obviously didn't know that that was going to happen but you've got two teams with essentially you know like um lame duck coaches <laughs> and players who know that they're going to be suspended and it's it's an extremely bizarre football game the the feeling around it, there's like a very guarded, you know, the, the fans there are obviously cheering, but they're cheering for teams that they know are like about to completely fall off the face of the earth because Arkansas the next season goes 4-8 and eight with John L. Smith as their head coach, which is a fate I wouldn't wish on any team to have John L. Smith as their head coach. And it obviously goes 6-6 six and six with Luke Fickle. Um just it, it's a it's an extremely surreal game to go back and and watch. Arkansas got one more year out of Petrino, and then it happened. Yeah, it happened after 2011. Because remember, in 2011, okay, yeah, that's right. They were yeah. 10 and one. They could have played for the national championship, and they played with one loss against LSU on the road. That's right. Yeah, and they lost yeah. to them, and they, ended, they got crushed. Yeah, yeah. They, they ended up. Okay, yeah, I remember. It they now. ended up finishing eleven and two and beating Kansas State in the Cotton Bowl, and then it was after that that it happened. So, like, but even going Man, back, the SEC was so good that yeah, year. Yeah, even going back and thinking <laughs> about that, Arkansas two years in a row was a legitimate, almost national championship contending team with Bobby Petrino, and then it it all fell apart. But yeah, everything about this game, and when you really look about look back at that 2011 Ohio State team, which I think justifiably gets shit on for being so unwatchable, it's not like they got destroyed in any of those losses other than the Miami game, just because it was, you know, Braxton Miller was getting a lot of PT, they were shifting with Joe Bowserman, and they just couldn't do anything on offense. As the season went on, you know, those the Nebraska loss and the subsequent losses were like six points, eight points, 
three points. So if they would have had Pryor, Posey, Heron, and Adams, and, and Jim Tressel as their coach, they had a legitimate shot at winning the national championship. And it, it changed not only careers, but it changed a lot of lives. Like you said, Pryor, I think, has much less of a negative connotation on him coming into the NFL and who knows what he ends up being in the NFL. Devere Posey, more so than anybody, got super screwed by all this because there was something else that either came out or... Yeah, there was a, like the weird internship a subsequent that came out. suspension yeah. where he only played in like the last three games that year. So he missed out on nine games of extra tape to give to NFL teams and Boom Heron got suspended for, you know, five games, and so did Mike Adams. Yeah, in four games, DeVere Posey had 12 receptions, which was second best on that team. <laughs> there was a tie for first at 14 receptions. <laughs> did, did Devin Smith have 16 and, and lead that 14. team? Wow. Yeah, Devin Smith, Corey Brown, and Jake Stoneburner all had 14. Jordan Hall and DeVere Posey both had 12. The next best to Carlos Hyde at 10, who was a backup running back at the time for, oh, I guess he was the starter. No, no Dan Heron, never mind, because Dan Heron came back like halfway through that season too. Uh, Carlos Hyde had 10 receptions. Verlin Reed had nine. Um, one of so my guys. Verlin Reed, yeah, one of, the, one of the serious contributors on this roster, Braxton Miller, um, 85 of 157, 54% completion percentage, under 1,200 yards passing on the season. <laughs> Just a bizarre season. Verlin Reed might be the top of my list of OG, wow, why can't this guy put it together? Because he was a freak out wide. Verlin Reed, the best receiver in Ohio State. <laughs> Verlin Reed is the GOAT. But getting getting into this game, this was also one where a lot of weird stuff happened. Ohio State has the first touchdown where Pryor makes like four dudes miss in he a way so fast on in that a way line. that only he can. There's also a play later in the game where Arkansas jumps off sides and has a chance to hit him and he just like glides past three or four dudes and gets 20 yards. But that touchdown play is iconic because he he glides through, gets like 22 yards and fumbles the ball. Two Arkansas defenders pop on it, and Dane Sanzenbacher is just there when it pops out into the end zone and makes the play for the touchdown, which might have been his second dumbest touchdown of the year behind the Penn State one, where Pryor threw a 50-yard bomb downfield, and it bounced off of someone's hands, and Sanzenbacher was just right place, right time. Yeah, Dane Sanzenbacher, another one of those guys that um, I, I think... Maybe maybe more rightly in his case uh, isn't talked about a ton when when thinking about good Ohio State players. He was but good. He put up numbers. Yeah, he put up numbers in in 2010. He almost hit a thousand yards receiving. I think that he would have been the first to do that since Michael Jenkins. Um, I, I believe if if I remember correctly, Parrish Campbell was the first to hit a thousand yards receiving in like more yep. than a decade at Ohio State. But Dan San, Dane Sanzenbacher was he was I mean never never a big play threat by any means just because he wasn't that fast. But um, all of your Dane Sanzenbacher comparisons for C.J. Saunders are unfair to Dane Sanzenbacher because he was good. <laughs> he was real good. He also caught a touchdown later on in this game that he just like scooped up off of the turf. Um, noted Patrick Mayhorn fan Jake Stoneburner also had three catches right. <laughs> in this game. I have a couple of different things written down including uh remember howard island because travis howard woof, he 
he and Devon Torrance were just dreadful in this game. That defensive backfield was very strange. <laughs> and and very they were, strange defensive backfield. They were a little a little limited because Chimdi Chekwa, who is another I think overlooked guy, he either broke his wrist or dislocated his wrist early in the game, and so they were already working on limited depth in the secondary. But Travis Howard and Devon Torrance just got absolutely roasted in this game. Yeah, the man looking at this this defensive group, it's a little strange that they were as good as they were <laughs> when looking at some of these names because I mean you got uh you got some Buckeye legends like Tyler Moeller, um, Storm Klein, who <laughs> I think is the best tough Borland comparison that you can make. Uh, Dominique Clark is was on this roster, Travis Howard, like you mentioned, Ohio State legend Jamie Wood. Um, there are some all time like you know, just remembering some guys. <laughs> there are some Ross Homan. Yeah, there are some all-time guys to remember on this roster. Also, some overlooked one. Uh, Jermail Hines did a really good job at that star The role. original Nickelback, yeah. This is when... Well, um, not the original, but you know what I mean. This is when uh, Zach Bourne was still playing linebacker. Nathan Williams, who was a dude that you could count on for a couple of plays, but I, I think... This game is the perfect example for that team that everything began and ended with Cam Hayward because in a game damn, he was in a game full of very good players, he was the best one on the field. He had three and a half tackles for loss in this game. He had a sack and maybe like three or four other times where he was able to get through the line and right as Ryan Mallett was throwing the ball or just after he just punished mallet all game he was playing with i think a bum a bum shoulder or a bum knee he was hurt in this game and he still was the best player on the field cam hayward is one of the best defensive linemen ever at ohio state and this might have been his masterpiece yeah i was recently um i've, I've been reading meat market which i, I don't know if you've read it before yeah. by uh bruce feldman great book about um yeah but he, i think it was the 2007 recruiting class and um he did a really in-depth embed it with uh with ed orgeron there and it connects to cam hayward because there was a very specific story in that book about how ed orgeron kind of um i, I guess check to see if there was any interest from cam hayward in um i don't know if he was to ohio state at the time but either flipping from ohio state to ole miss or just committing to ole miss outright and um he he went and inquired about the interest and cam hayward's mom just told him no <laughs> cam hayward has no interest in staying in the south <laughs> Yeah, he so, was out. Uh, so we're yeah, word up to to Cam Hayward's mom on that for delivering Cam Hayward to Ohio State because he was really really good. We talked about how the last game against NC State was a very trestle game. This one might have been peak trestle because at one point Ohio State's up twenty eight seven. They're up twenty eight ten at half and buddy they almost blew this game this almost was the most trestle 2009 usc is still my number one but i can remember wanting to fire jim trestle into the sun as this game unfolded because there was no and reason they did th immediately <laughs> after the game ended they fired him in the sun <laughs> they, they did anyway but this was one where it looked like ohio state was clearly the dominant team they were just killing them in the first half 
And then whether they got conservative on offense or what, I don't know, but it became a game. Yeah, and it was like like you said, twenty eight seven going into seemingly going into halftime. Arkansas kicks a field goal uh, right at the end of the half to cut it down to twenty eight ten, and like going through rewatching this game, and then the funnier version of of a way to watch this game is to watch the Ohio State highlights. I think they're about five minutes long, and you see like early on, there's a bunch of great Ohio State plays. There's the Dane Sands and Bacher, um, you know, fumble recovery. You've got Terrell Pryor lighting them up, and then as the highlights go on, it doesn't show Arkansas's like touchdowns or field goals. <laughs> it just shows Arkansas's points slowly rising with each passing play, <laughs> and like. Ohio State getting these these decent plays, but seemingly never scoring on them, kind of moving the ball down the field a little bit, passing the time, and then punting. And it's it's a really funny way to watch a football game because Arkansas just kept hitting field goal. They they just kept very slowly adding more points to their total, and then it gets up to 31-26. It feels like you know Arkansas has all the momentum in the world. They had just gotten, I think it was a safety on um the worst safety call ever the absolute (laughs) worst safety call ever he gets stopped at the two for at least a second and a half and he gets driven back shakes the dude off and the officials are just like yeah i don't know forward progress wasn't stopped even though he lost like four yards cowardly decision by the referees um (laughs) now uh eight years retrospective we're very mad about the referees in this case still upset (laughs) yeah but it it looks like you know arkansas is going to be able to come back it it just it, it feels like they're, they're so close, they kick a field goal. Ohio State gets the ball back with about eight minutes left. They hold on to it a little bit. They don't really move anywhere. Um, and then Boom Heron fumbles on a, a fourth and one. And, like, I don't really remember watching this game live, um, but watching it back, like, there is very much a feeling of, like, how does Ohio State possibly hold on now? Because <laughs> Arkansas had the ball on Ohio State's, like... Um, Ohio State's 37, you know, and their their offense had been rolling. Ryan had been, you know, finally kind of finding his groove. And then, like, this is where I think the the true trestle ball kicks in because the defense just shuts down. <laughs> it like, you know, all these guys who like um, individually outside of like Cam Hayward and maybe a couple of the other, you know players in that front seven weren't that great individually uh but as a team they they come together and they just completely shut arkansas down you know it's uh there was a holding call that bumped out the defense but arkansas suddenly can't pass at all ohio state's offense still doesn't do anything when they get the ball back it is just kind of a punt fest at this point and then um i think it was solomon thomas that has the kind of the the game um the like the game winning interception down in Ohio State territory and um just a just a really strange way for the game to end but really like an extremely fitting way for the Jim Tressel era to 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 end because you have this high flying offense that jumps out to an early lead and then just stops and they let the other team all the way back in the game and then the defense decides that they're tired of doing this and they just end it um and it's. I think it's fun to go back and watch for different reasons than the NC State game is. The NC State game was certainly, I think, much much crazier, much um, more like 
much more things happening. But this is really like if you want a a vintage Jim Trestle game where the offense shows a a ton of flash, you do have these big plays. You do have Terrell Pryor running all over the place. Um, and then you have at the very end just lockdown defense, just <laughs> absolutely smothering defense. Um, but it was fun to go back and, and watch this again. It was fun to watch like a time when Ohio State's defense was absolutely locked down. And this was really, you know, this was kind of when the the silver bullets was really like the the truest way to describe this defense because they were just mean at the end of this game. We'd be remiss to not talk about the block punt, which gave Arkansas the ball there with one minute and 15 seconds left. I don't know who the special teams coordinator was. I'm assuming Jim Trestle had a lot to do with that. Just a mind-numbing decision to not have the full protection on there for the block. In, In story time, I remember watching this game with my dad and the punt block happens, and I was just miserable. I remember because Arkansas should have scored on the block punt. They had at least one dude fumble it and then just fall on it. But there was like five Arkansas guys. They had a convoy. There was no Ohio State players around. And there is no reason that they should not have scored on it. And I remember just saying over and over again, it would have been better if he just scored. And then when they got on offense, I was like, just let them score. Let them score and get the ball back. Whoops. Because on second down, yeah, there's the pick with 58 seconds left from Solomon Thomas. And it makes it even funnier that the game ended this way because he was the fifth guy that got suspended in all of this. And Solomon Thomas did nothing up to this point. (laughs) And they drop him. (laughs) Yeah, they drop him in coverage. And he makes the interception, and it really is a fitting tie-in because of the suspensions, because it's the last game of the Trestle era. And two, it's it's funny to go back and look because the next time Ohio State was in the Sugar Bowl, a defensive lineman makes a huge interception that ends up turning the tide of the game. So that's just something fun, like a, a nice little bit of symmetry that that happened in the last two Sugar Bowls that Ohio State played in. And to your point, I think ultimately there are there are better games that we left out on this list, I think, for for this one. But given the significance of everything involved, it being Terrell Pryor's last game, it being the last game that Jim Trestle coached at Ohio State before everything happened, the suspensions, the SEC streak, and just generally the way that Ohio State football changed after this game and not just a small change there was a major change and really the bridge between two eras to where we just ended at the end of 2018 i think 19 is a great spot for this game and it's really the the perfect encapsulation of everything about the jim trestle era and to put a bow on it the sec streak ends and when you can beat Bobby Petrino like that, I mean, come on. Michigan head coach Bobby Petrino. I love it. It's good. <laughs> Michigan quality control coordinator. Now, hey, we'll we'll know Al, we'll know Nick Saban is really just saying f- you to everybody and messing around when he puts Bobby Petrino on the quality control staff. Yeah, it'll be good. I, I mean, he's probably already done it. When we try, when he tries to rehab him, then we know like, okay, now he's just bored and he's trying to mess around. But I, I think nineteen is a good spot for this game and this was a very Jim Trestle way for everything to end. I think a little bit more um the the intrigue and in rewatching comes from the significance comes from 
like I said earlier, kind of the surreal things surrounding this game. Um, you see during this game, I, I think four or five times ESPN cuts to like Arkansas fan signs. I, I know after the uh, one of the, the early plays, they cut to a, an Arkansas fan with a very tattoo-related sign. And it, it's just a bizarre thing to go back and watch. And certainly the best game ever, I, I think that, you know, it, it was, like you mentioned, a very Jim Trestle game, uh, and sometimes those can be pretty frustrating, especially when watching live. But I, I do think it, it's certainly worth going back and watching, and I, I think there are you know other games on this list that are um, much more enjoyable, pure football watches uh, that we'll get to in some of the next episodes. Yes, we will. We have two new games coming up on the next episode. I think this was a, a great place to kick it off with and we won't spoil what we got coming up but i think too that people are going to be very excited one that people will be very excited about <laughs> one yeah one that people will be very excited about uh, the, the one that people will get a little bit i, I think upset over <laughs> you think people will get upset think, over that i think you'll get upset over it. i think i'm fine with that one where it is but when people talk about it like it's a top five game I get it because of the significance of it, but anything other than that, like that game sucks. It's, it's a bad, bad game, but like the significance, what it means and what eventually would happen. I, I think it's, it's obviously a great game and I, I don't want to say that it sucks because it's, it's one of my favorite Ohio state games, but in terms of just like rewatchability, woof. And yeah. we're, we're going to yeah. get into it on the next episode <laughs> of The Hangout in the Holy Land. This was a great place to start. And, of course, please follow along with us. We'll have links to it in the write-up to this piece. Patrick and I will also have some thoughts there in the write-ups uh, about this game and just some other stuff that you can dive into. And please send us your feedback on what you think about this and our list and what your top 20 Ohio most rewatchable Ohio State games are are for you send us a tweet at holy land pod i'm at dubs co patrick is at patrick underscore mayhorn and yeah keep up with everything we got going on here with the top 20 we're going to keep this probably over the next month and a half and we're going to stretch it out it's going to be a lot of fun hopefully there will be some debate and, and good opinions flying around there so please make sure to uh to let us know what you think about it but until next time We'll see you for episode, for not an episode, but for numbers 18 and 17 right here on the Hangout in the Holy Land.